Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe and tell your friends. Coming up on today's podcast, Global News' Donna Friesen has the first interview with Justin Trudeau post-blackface scandal. Are there more pictures? Also, talk of impeachment is now surfacing again in the United States. How did Donald Trump get himself into this mess? And climate change and the land of extremes. How do we separate the rhetoric from reality? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Donna Friesen from Global News sat down uh, in the first interview since the uh, blackface, brownface scandal uh, broke uh, uh, last week. And, And it was interesting listening to him and how he discussed justifying all of this. And this is what I have talked about. Uh, in the past, uh, I think we all accept his apology. Well, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't put words in your mouth. Uh, I certainly accept his apology. I don't think the man's a racist. Uh, that being said, I, I do think it was a, uh, a, a, a complete breakdown in judgment. I mean, a complete lack of judgment. Uh, obviously, he said that due to his, uh, his privileged upbringing that he didn't realize that this was wrong. He didn't realize that this would hurt people. And to me, this begs the greater question, well, if you have a blind spot to to, to this sort of information, to this sort of knowledge from the average person, how can you not, how can you not uh, be blind to to, to everything else that doesn't happen uh, within uh, an elitist society? And and basically what he said was that... um, uh, that as he got into politics, his attitude changed uh, in regard to uh, the use of blackface and and his empathy towards people. Uh, He goes on to say, after asked about this, I think the years following my father's death involved a lot of changes for me. I went back to Montreal in 2002. I went back to school, studied engineering, studied environmental geography. I got got involved more with uh, Katimovic, Canada's National Youth Service Program. I did more environmental and youth activism. I was learning a lot more about public uh, engagement and a lot more about service. And obviously, I'm a very different person today than I was back then. Uh, Donna Fries and then goes on to ask, so 2001 is, uh, was the last time, referring to uh, blackface, and he said yes. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, has another great one in there uh, today and contributor to the Washington Times. He's with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, your thought on how this is playing out after last week? It seems that things have settled down. It, th- it seems as if this is starting to sink into people. We've seen some fluctuation in the polls. What are your thoughts as we're a few days out of this? Yeah, I, I would say it's not as hot as it was last week. Absolutely true. It has it's certainly cooled down maybe to a mild simmer. It's not completely gone because as you were discussing, as I was just waiting for you, you mentioned Donna Friesen's uh, interview with Justin Trudeau, where they talked about the whole blackface, brownface controversy and different aspects to it. But yes, I mean, look, like all controversies, no matter the country and no matter the issue, eventually the public moves on to other things. The question here is that we have moved on to other things in Canada, but is this going to continue to still permeate to some degree because the opposition parties are just obviously not going to let go of it. And why should they? 
it's political lightning. You know, it's 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 the sort of political lightning in a bottle that you want to use every election, but you rarely ever get the chance because something like this just doesn't normally pop up. Certainly not in democracy, and not in general, anyway. So, I would agree that some Canadians have moved on. I think those that obviously dislike Trudeau or dislike the Liberal government are not going to let it drop, and nor should they. We know that, for example, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh and Mr. Trudeau had a phone call the other day, and although the details have not come out, it was roughly about 10 minutes, and my guess is that nothing was technically resolved. They probably just hashed out a few things and left it at that. Do we know any details of this call at all other than there was a call? Unless you know something more than I do, because no, I have heard absolutely nothing with respect to this call other than it happened, although... The only thing I do sort of understand, and maybe you have mentioned this already on your program, is that apparently on the Liberal bus, the reporters actually didn't know it, it had occurred. Yeah, I saw they that report. Their NDP, the colleagues on the NDP bus yeah. had occurred. So, so it that's didn't, about it, all I know of it. Is it odd that this was happening via a, a call? Should it have been a face-to-face thing? No. No, and doesn't I matter. Actually, no, thing actually handled that properly. Because when you do a face-to-face thing, Scott, then you're right in front of the camera. Yeah, everybody's got to be a part of it. Exactly. I think that if this is really, you know, and I think it truly did bother Mr. Singh. He made the comments more personal than political when he initially responded to it last week. And while certainly, you know, politics is an amount of theater and staging, we know that. And even I even think privately he would admit that, that being Singh. At the same time, he obviously was very compelled to say something because, one, it was one of the two groups affected. He is part of the the East Indian group, so for him it obviously had a direct effect. And two, based on his history, which has been explained in his book and certain interviews and so forth, he had issues and problems related to racism. So Mm -hmm. I think it hurt him very, very deeply. And no, I think he handled it the right way. He didn't want it to be in front of the cameras. He wanted it to be a private call. I don't think he wanted to go on for hours and hours because they would just, you know, keep going in circles and not much would be accomplished. But he basically got 10 minutes to listen, I would assume, to the prime minister's explanation, a few minutes for him to to retort back and make his comments and analysis and what he directly felt about it. And I doubt anything was resolved because how can you resolve something like that? It's not an issue that you can just sweep under a rug as some liberal supporters are trying to do, but it's not going to work. Anyway, look, the the overall thing is, irrespective of that call, I think it's fair to say that some Canadians have moved past it. It's just a question of, one, have we heard everything related to this controversy? Mm. We know of three incidents. Are there going to be others? Uh, apparently, well, Donna, Donna, Free- Donna Friesen did ask him if there was more, if this was the last time, and he did say yes. That was, yeah, and that was his indication. But yeah. at the same time, doesn't it sort of say something? It took almost a week and various interviews and various reporters' questions to finally come to this determination? Yeah. Don't you think he would have known it right up front? I mean, look, when, this, when the original story broke, the 2001, the, the brownface controversy or the Arabian Nights theme party, he admitted that there was a second one or a second episode that nobody knew about. And while he didn't definitively say there was anything else, he seemed to almost allude to the fact that that evening that that was basically it. And then a third one came down the next day. So my guess is that he probably doesn't remember. And I think that in itself 
is more unnerving and terrifying than anything else we've actually seen this past week, that he can't even recall to his memory how many times this happened. He now just sort of seems to say that 2001 was the last time it occurred. And by the way, it should be very quickly mentioned that while it's nice that the prime minister said all this to Freeze and that during the global news interview that his, you know, his opinions changed after his father's death and various things that he did. Let's keep one thing in mind, because this is the position that I thought was completely preposterous last night, and I posted a tweet about it, which is very simple. Pierre Elliott Trudeau died in 2000. Justin Trudeau's last incident of brownface or blackface was 2001, roughly a year after his father's death. If his father's death really impacted him that much and he was you know, in the process of changing why would he have done it a third time? And as an adult at the age of 29, you got to think about that. Uh, as I mentioned to you before, uh, uh, my issue with this was the fact that he did not know this was wrong because of his privileged upbringing. Does Correct. that excuse that he gave, does, does that cover that? No, it doesn't cover it at all. And quite frankly, without getting into my whole financial affairs, I'm, two, I'm roughly two years older than this prime minister, and I came from a world that where my father was obviously not prime minister of this country, but would have been determined to be, by most eyes, privileged. Right. And quite frankly, Scott, it never occurred to me once in my entire life to ever do something like that. I do not know anyone who ever did something like that. I can't even fathom in polite company or elsewhere that people would find this acceptable. I think most of us knew right from wrong and have known that blackface and brownface since the days of vaudeville, when Al Jolson yeah. We're on the stage thing it it has not been acceptable for not just for months years days decades the fact that he couldn't reach realize this or only reached this determination somewhere after 2001 2002 2003 i'm sorry being from a privileged background doesn't mean anything you can come from privilege you can come from a ghetto you realize that something is good or bad it's pretty obvious based on what people tell you, based on what you read, listen, hear to, and based on just your associations with others who would just say to you that, no, certain things were acceptable in society at one point, but aren't now. Blackface and brownface were acceptable at one point in our society. They haven't been for decades, not at all. And why Justin Trudeau didn't realize this for so many years is beyond me, and only he can explain it. Um, uh, polls now coming out. Some show the the liberals ahead, or sorry, the conservatives uh, inching ahead, and them uh, gaining momentum. Yep. Uh, should this? Are you surprised this hasn't had a greater impact? Well, you know, it's interesting. <clears throat> Pollsters are looking at because many are saying this is a wash. It is and it isn't. There's there's a bit of a mix. I, I think you have to sort of go back from the day the writ was dropped and look at this whole period. When the day, the day that the writ was dropped, the Tories were a little bit ahead in a few polls and a little bit behind the Liberals in others. Within two, three, four days of the campaign starting, which was when the Liberals were really starting to hammer some of the Tory candidates who had made, you know, either what was assumed to be inappropriate comments about gay marriage, abortion, and other things, either personally or on social media, that started to flip the script. And the Liberals started to move ahead in most, not all, but most polls, again, by small margins. Since that time, and now with the blackface-brownface controversy of last week, 
The polls have yet flipped again, and the Tories lead or are tied in most in most uh, immediate polls in Canada. So is it a wash? No, because if you look at the pattern from the day the writ was dropped to, let's say, the day that you and I are talking, the Tories have actually had a fair amount of momentum, and the Liberals have fallen back a bit. Nobody is in free fall any longer. The Liberals were briefly for about a two, three-day period, but clearly that's not the case anymore. I wouldn't necessarily call it a wash, but again, I think that because, as we talked about at the top, that things have slowed down a little bit, the polls are starting to shift around a little bit more and say some of the progressives who had maybe abandoned the liberals for a short period of time and were favoring to either support the NDP or the Greens come October 21st, Maybe because everything's quietened down, they're sort of slowly moving a little bit back into the liberal camp. And just this is kind of the way things are going to go for the next little while or until another controversy breaks. So not quite a wash. The Tories have actually performed better. And the NDP, except for one or two polls, have actually performed better overall. The big loser out of all this has been the Liberal Party. The only thing that's been lucky is that liberal support overall, core support, seems to be very stable, because if not, they would have dipped below the 30% barrier, say, three to four days ago. How does this compare as far as damage uh, to the SNC-Lavalin and Jody Wilson-Raybould scandal? Remains to be seen, because the campaign still has a little under a month to go. But if you just compare them today, side by side, recognizing the fact that NNC-Lavalin lasted for a much longer period of time, and we talked about it for much, a much longer period of time. You and I, I, I talked about it with many other people. You've talked about it with many other people. It lasted for months. I think that overall, a lot of people have moved past NNC-Lavalin, not because they're willing to forgive the liberals, but because it happened so many months ago. The blackface brownface controversy, even though it's not percolating quite as much, is still on people's minds. It's something that Justin Trudeau is going to have to deal with during this campaign and for the rest of his political career, no matter how long it lasts. Even if he's defeated next month, it's something he will always have to discuss. And if he really is truly embarrassed about it or just embarrassed by the fact that it was revealed without him trying to bury it for so many years and not reveal to anyone else, whatever the case may be, it's something that he will have to deal with for a long period of time. And make no mistake about it. The first leaders' debate on October 7th, Ooh-wee. every single opposition My party is going to bring this up. Because Mike, they're not fools. They know they have to. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, his latest in there now, and Washington Times contributor. Thank you, Michael, as always. Much, uh, much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a good day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, Lots of chatter down south of the border again. The word impeachment is coming up. This in regard to uh, the U.S. president asking the Ukraine president for information on uh, former U.S. uh, Vice President uh, Joe Biden's son, Hunter, uh, during a call in July saying, uh, well, basically uh, a transcript has been released saying that he was talking to the Ukraine president in regard to information on uh, Biden and his son, perhaps to use uh, in his uh, upcoming election campaign. That has called uh, for uh, an inquiry of impeachment. Let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington. He's with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. 
So uh, Nancy Pelosi has held off uh, anything towards impeachment. Has has you know America doesn't want to hear that. Doesn't want to see. It doesn't want to uh, see that. Uh, how is this different now? And what does this process mean? Inquiry to impeachment. What's happening now? Well, I think the difference in what we had heard from Nancy Pelosi over the last couple of months, uh, when it was mostly a lot of progressives inside the party, some new members inside the party were pushing for this impeachment vote. Uh, This latest incident involving the president and this phone call uh, with Ukraine's president and this whistleblower complaint has brought out some more of the moderates from inside the party. It's brought out people that Nancy Pelosi was trying to protect uh, who were in uh, writings that President Trump won handily in 2016, who are all now calling for impeachment. And the pressure might have simply been too great for Nancy Pelosi, and she realized this was the point to do it, uh, because running into an election year, uh, this could be her last opportunity. So this is partly why we believe that Nancy Pelosi has made the decision. Uh, As for this inquiry, it basically allows for investigations to continue into the president under the umbrella of an impeachment inquiry. They'll take the findings a couple of months from now, whenever they're finished with them, and say, look, this is the time or this is not the time to file articles of impeachment. Has this, this has pretty much been ongoing, though, has it not? Uh, The investigations have been ongoing for years now, but instead of being each uh, committee investigating the president for whatever the reason that that committee is investigating for, now they're all bound together investigating for one reason, and that's whether or not to impeach. Okay, so what is Donald Trump talking about? What what are his concerns about Biden and his son with regard to the Ukraine, uh, Ukraine president? Well, the concerns over Joe Biden and Hunter Biden are kind of being grasped at from a whole bunch of different angles, and it's trying to be made into uh, one cohesive thought or one coherent thought uh, in the Republican Party. Basically, what we had was uh, Hunter Biden took a job uh, on a board of a Ukrainian energy company a number of years ago. Uh, That company uh, was also at one point being investigated by the country's top prosecutor. And in 2018, uh, Joe Biden had said, look, this prosecutor needs to be fired. He's not doing a good job. Uh, Corruption throughout the country. Country is continuing and he's not doing anything to really suppress that. Uh, the the big thing that Republicans aren't talking about, nor the president, is when Joe Biden made those comments in 2018, the investigation into that company had already uh, been shelved and was no longer underway. So there are some critics that say, look, Hunter Biden may have used his father's name to get uh, the privilege of getting to be on that board. But at the end of the day, the investigation was not actually happening uh, when Hunter was there and Joe Biden didn't do anything to stop the uh, prosecutor from investigating the company. So does it appear that there's any information or anything to indicate that the Bidens did anything wrong? No, and this has been, uh, you know, kind of fact-checked and debunked over the last couple of years. There have been a number of stories out there that have uh, shown that there is no proof, there is no evidence that the Bidens did anything wrong here. There may have been some ethical questions about it, but at the end of the day, no laws were broken, uh, because if they would have been broken, uh, attorneys general would have been looking into this over the last couple of years, and that has not happened. So uh, the transcript has been released How da- uh, of, this, uh, of this phone call, although uh, I guess that's not word for word. That's a, recollect- a recollection of what happened. Uh, it has been released. How damaging is it? And if it is damaging, why would the White House release it? Well, those are some good questions right now. Number one, I believe we should probably call it a memo or a memorandum. It's not quite a transcript. It's not word for word, like you said. It's just kind of a, a summary of notes from somebody that was inside the room. There are a number of... Uh, parts of this conversation that it doesn't make any sense as to why the White House would put this out in the public because it does paint uh, 
kind of negative picture about the president's conversation with Ukraine's president. Uh, I think that Democrats are going to try to run with this right now because there's information in here where the president brings up Joe Biden's name and says, I'd like to have you have conversations with my personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, possibly with the attorney general, William Barr, to look into Joe Biden's actions and the firing of this top prosecutor. And that's where uh, Democrats and Speaker Pelosi are saying that the president breached the ethics of the Oval Office by asking a foreign government to potentially investigate a political opponent. Uh, Here's what uh, the president had to say in regard to the transcripts being released. Just so you understand, it's the single greatest witch hunt in American history, probably in history, but in American history, it's a disgraceful thing. The way you had that built up, that call, it was going to be the call from hell. It turned out to be a nothing call other than a lot of people said, I never knew you could be so nice. Hmm. A nothing call? Reggie? I don't know. A nothing call is not the way to put it. And it's also not the single greatest witch hunt in history because he already said that the Russia investigation was the single greatest witch hunt in history. (laughs) And we could also argue that uh, witch hunts, when they actually took place hundreds of years ago, were probably the greatest witch hunts in history. Uh, That said, there are things in here that the president simply says were perfect and have no problems. But if you look towards the the later ends of the conversation between the two presidents, uh, President Zelensky says, I would like to thank you for your great support in the area of defense. And he talks about potentially buying new equipment from uh, from American military and American defense. Uh, the very next sentence from the president is, I would like you to do us a favor. And Democrats are latching onto that, saying, well, if this isn't direct quid pro quo, uh, there are some questionable uh, activities here because the president shouldn't be asking for a favor when somebody's asking something else. So uh, was it a great phone call? I'm sure it was because it was congratulatory at the beginning. But this is going to be damaging for the White House uh, for the foreseeable future. Does Donald Trump know or realize or understand what he said was off-base? Does he have the capacity to know he can't get into those discussions with other world leaders? Well, I mean, he he probably does. And I mean, look, at the end of the day, he can have a conversation with a world leader. He just can't be making promises or asking that world leader to do something uh, for him and for potentially his own benefit. And you'd think that that would have become obvious based on what uh, we just saw presented by Robert Mueller from the investigation that last the very beginnings until two months ago of the Trump presidency. So, you know, whether or not he just thinks because uh, he came out of the Mueller investigation unscathed and, uh, you know, can't be prosecuted for any crimes because of, uh, you know, notes from the Office of Legal Counsel. There, there are any number of reasons why the president does what he does. Uh, the problem is, is that what he's done in this phone call by saying that it doesn't matter, he could find out going forward that it does matter. So uh, his actions, right or wrong? I mean, I'm sure Nancy Pelosi isn't going to start an impeachment inquiry unless she thinks she can get one. No. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, look, Nancy Pelosi has had, you know, ample number of months and years to put an impeachment inquiry forth, and she didn't do it until recently. So she believes that she probably has some kind of standing behind her. And I mean, the latest numbers right now, the House would need 218 people on board to push impeachment forward. They have 212 people right now. So there is a good opportunity for uh, Nancy Pelosi to have uh, the House standing behind her while this impeachment vote eventually makes its way to the floor. The problem is when it goes to the Senate, uh, she knows full well that it's going to die because that's Republican held. So uh, how is this playing in the United States? Are are people who don't know any better that this isn't uh, diplomacy, this isn't a leadership protocol? 
can he just say to Americans, hey, I asked the guy for us some help, so what's wrong with that? And is that fine? Is that acceptable? Well, well I mean, that's exactly what he's did, he, he, what he's done. He's already said, I had this phone call, I asked for some help, I don't see any problem with that. Yeah. Uh, and there is a good majority of, of people in his base that fully believe that the president <laughs> exactly. can do what he wants and ask what he wants uh, and say what he wants, and there will be no consequence because that's what they've seen over the last 18 months to two years. So why do this if it's going to die in the Senate? Well, I think that it's an opportunity for the Democrats to say, look, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Sure, they've been investigating the president for everything from, uh, you know, financial crimes to things with the Intelligence Committee to things with the Judiciary Committee. Uh, there have been no shortage of investigations into the president. But the House has also uh, been putting forward uh, budget resolution bills. They've been putting forward gun legislation to the Senate. They've been putting forward uh, things to do with the economy. They're do deal trying to deal with things with USMCA. And I think that there is an opportunity for Democrats to go onto the election uh, campaign trail and say, while we were investigating the president of the United States, we were also passing meaningful legislation that the Senate was not dealing with when we handed it to them so they can say, we can do two things at once. Right. So what happens with this investigation regarding the Ukraine president? Uh, chatter, chatter of the whistleblower uh, testifying? Will, will we know anything more there? Well, the White House, uh, according to reports, is... Uh, supposedly going to release the whistleblower complaint possibly today. We heard that that was supposed to happen. We know that they're trying to declassify it. Uh, we also know that the Department of Justice has kind of intervened and superseded the Inspector General from the Intelligence Committee to say that uh, when this whistleblower complaint was brought forward, it was filed under campaign finance violation for fear that the president may gain something of value. And the DOJ says, no, there was no uh, there was no violation at all. So in doing so, that effectively stops the need for uh, that complaint to make its way into the hands of Congress. So whether or not they're going to get to see that, whether or not the mm. White House puts it out, there's one thing. The whistleblower could go to Congress, but there could be legal ramifications because it would be leaking classified information without it having gone through the proper channels. Obviously, Nancy Pelosi concerned that this is all going to backfire for the Democrats. We've seen that happen in the past. What's different here? Well, there is an opportunity for this to backfire, and I think that's what the Republican Party is going to be running on right now, to say, look, the president has done nothing wrong since he's been in office, and this is just another uh, overreach from the party who has been against the president uh, since he announced his candidacy uh, a number of years ago. I think that Nancy Pelosi simply says, look, there's a good portion of America who has been following along with what the president has said, who's been following along uh, with the antics uh, both inside the Oval Office and the administration as a whole, and they're looking at that saying, we have the ability to to uh, kind of make some change here in Washington or potentially sway the viewpoint of the voter as they're heading into the voting booth next year. So maybe impeachment doesn't take the president out, but there will be enough votes to remove the president uh, from the ballot box. Uh, does the president care that Nancy Pelosi is talking about impeachment or does he love the attention and the, and the division, the distraction? Well, he must care a little bit because there are reports yesterday that the president called Nancy Pelosi to say, what can we do uh, about this uh, this phone call, this transcript, uh, you know, before it kind of blows up. So there is a little bit of fear uh, potentially inside uh, the Oval Office or inside the United Nations right now where the president is hanging out. Hang on uh, right there. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, I mean, look, the president is the this is the the man who is the uh, the deal maker, the deal maker in chief. And he was simply potentially trying to call uh, the person who could undo his presidency by saying, look, if this happened, maybe there's something in there. Probably there isn't. But maybe we can work something out and we don't have to bring this uh, to the kind of big deal that it is. Obviously, the House Speaker didn't go along with that. And, and she decided to push forward with this. But impeachment is obviously on the mind of the president, regardless of whether or not he says he's OK with it or not. It's amazing that uh, if he's so concerned about it, he leaves himself so wide open, for example, with phone calls like this. Well, absolutely. The president himself is who brought on uh, this kind of impeachment uh, inquiry that the, that the House Speaker has put out there. <laughs> exactly. You know, Rudy Giuliani hasn't helped with the situation because the smoke and mirrors that he decides to put out there oftentimes can kind of get in the way of the actual message. And it confuses people even more and potentially makes the president look even worse than he looked before. Rudy Giuliani's interview. Uh, but at the end of the day, the president always said, look, if you're going to come after me, you're going to impeach me. I'm going to win uh, and I'm going to beat this. And, you know, that's what he's carrying with him right now. Unbelievable. Um, OK, I'm going to go uh, uh, T-bone you here, Reggie, and ask you something completely off uh, topic here. But obviously you're down in Washington. You got your uh, your nose to the grindstone there. Uh, up here, we all know about the situation, the images with the prime minister and blackface. How is that resonating? Uh, has it resonated in the United States? You know what? It's a big story in Canada. It's still being picked up in papers around the world. The problem is, is that Canadian news very easily gets trampled on uh, in the U.S. and oftentimes has a hard time making its way kind of beyond border cities. And while this was a big story last week, everyone was talking about it. The president was making mentions of it when he was doing a bilateral with uh, Australia's prime minister in the Oval Office. The story is barely making its way uh, into any kind of first four or five pages of the newspapers down here. And it's not making itself known in any of the uh, broadcasts on TV. So while it's a big story at home, uh, the U.S. is always going to have its own problems to deal with. And unfortunately, the problems that the U.S. has to deal with become problems for the world and it kind of bounces out any other news up to and including the issues that are still happening in the UK as well. <laughs> Good point. Uh, here's what the president had to say about Justin Trudeau. I was hoping I wouldn't uh, be asked that question. It had to be you that asked it. You, you had to ask me that question, right, Justin? I'm surprised and I was more surprised when I saw the number of times and you know I've always had a good relationship with Justin. Uh, I just don't know what to tell you. It's, I was surprised by it actually. Reggie, uh, gloating a bit on this for the president, considering, you know, when the two are standing side by side, uh, obviously, uh, certainly Canadians and many Americans uh, probably like Trudeau more than they do Trump. Well, I don't know. There's a lot of Americans who have a different view of Donald Trump right now, a different view, rather, of Justin Trudeau right now, based on what happened last week and based on conversations that I've had with people. Uh, you know, a little tongue in cheek for the president to say he's got a good relationship with him. Obviously, the two of them aren't very good friends. But also, uh, you know, important to note that when the president said, I hope you wouldn't ask me that question, you have to remember who that was talking. It, it was a man who has given credence to people on both sides before when there was a, uh, you know, alt-right uh, Klan rally happening in West Vir uh, in Virginia. So he had to be very careful because at the end of the day, as repulsive as uh, racist, racist remarks are from people, there are people in the United States who have those views that support the president, and yeah. he doesn't do anything he can to offend those people. All right, getting back to the whole impeachment thing, uh, Donald Trump has been tweeting madly since this all went uh, uh, all went down, uh, uh, presidential harassment and caps, that sort of thing. Uh, does he keep this alive more than anyone else? 
Uh, that's how all these controversies go when the president is involved. His Twitter feed continues because either he's tweeting or his staff members are tweeting. Uh, and it's what keeps the, the conversation going. I mean, he's already called this witch hunt garbage. He's retweeting other people from, uh, from certain specific media networks and from specific print, uh, publications, uh, and the fact that, you know, this is the big story right now, he's going to take either one side of it and spin it to the point of where people need a new story to talk about, or he's simply just going to run with this and, and go and say, look, come after me all you want. I'm going to beat this. I did nothing wrong, despite the fact that you can read it in five pages that people are holding on to. Mm. Uh, he still believes he did nothing wrong. Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News based in Washington. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm going to uh, read you my commentary today, and hopefully that'll give you a better idea of where I'm coming from on this, because I have a feeling that uh, because of the election campaign and what have you, uh, I think a lot of Canadians are concerned about climate change. They're just divided in how they should deal with it. And unfortunately, like everything in life nowadays, it's it's being handled by extremists. Either you're an extremist on one side or the other. Here's the commentary. Uh, There's been lots of chatter about Greta Thornburg. She is the 16-year-old environmental activist whose passion and determination has gained worldwide attention with her climate change speech to the UN. As most aspects of life these days, the climate change discussion is one of extremes. Either people love her for her cause or hate her thinking she is being manipulated. The problem with climate change and the discussion is it has been hijacked by extremists on both sides of the debate who are putting their own agendas above that of the average citizen. You're either on one side of the the debate and you are in, and there is no middle ground for the activists at both ends of the spectrum. I believe Canadians accept climate change. What they're divided on is how to deal with it. But most would agree it requires a balanced approach to make any transition successful. That is what's missing from the discussion balance. Instead, we have the world is coming to an end if we don't pay up or it's all a hoax by the tree huggers. No wonder the average Canadian is cynical. The best way to deal with climate change is by coming up with a plan most can cope with because no one is willing to step backwards after centuries of progress. Instead, it may be easier to learn how to deal with upcoming climate change while creating renewable energy and self-sufficiency funded by what we have. So, again, if we could somehow separate the rhetoric on both the left and the right and come up with a plan that everybody sees as manageable, we might better, we might better benefit from these discussions. Uh, to talk more about all of this, and uh, we'll, we'll take various aspects, various angles throughout the course of the hour, William Stewart is with us. Stewart Smith Law, author of the book Climate of Uncertainty, A Balanced Look at Global Warming and Renewable Energy, and he is with us now. Bill, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Scott, glad to be here. Uh, talk about the divisiveness of this issue. Is it is the divisiveness keeping us from moving forward? Yeah, I think it is. And, you know, I, I sort of feel like a, a comedian who's um, getting ready to come on stage after her, hearing uh, all his best jokes told. Um, <laughs> that was a really good uh, introduction to um, what I think is going on, I think you really nailed it in your open remarks in terms of, you know, how we're how we're divided. And if you sort of think about like how that is, how that could be, um, it really doesn't make sense. I mean, we all should want the same thing for our planet. We all should, 
you know, hear the clarion call to work together and, and, and try to address it as a true risk management issue and try to figure out, you know, what do we know and what can we do about it? But it, it really has become incredibly fractious. And I think the reason is it, it, to a large degree, is sort of a proxy of the larger government debate that we've had, you know, as human beings, time immemorial. And, you know, the, the, it's very difficult. I think we could probably all agree. It's very difficult to address a global, a truly global problem like climate change without some form of a global governance to deal with it. And so as soon as you say that, say that, you know, you're in for, in for a fight. And that's because if you do, you know, if you're a libertarian, uh, and I certainly have some libertarian blood in me, um, you you become concerned that people will use this as an opportunity to to grow government and you know sort of you know, take larger control of our lives. Um, and there's certainly some justification for that. But on the flip side, you got a real problem, and there's real indicia that it needs to be dealt with. And so you got to come up with some way to balance those objectives, and, and that's that's why I wrote the book. Uh, Elizabeth May, head of our Green Party here, said, uh, we're Thelma and Louise heading for the cliff if we don't hit the brakes now. Um, does that move the discussion forward? Or, uh, again, is there a way to do this without parking the car for life? Yeah, so sort of stay on that analogy. I, I, I've, you know, I have seven seven kids and the the reason i i wrote this was wow congratulations good for you <laughs> thank you i'm not sure if congratulations is the right word but <laughs> i really appreciate that um my uh one of my daughters um asked me you know what i thought about this climate change about a decade ago and i couldn't answer the question um and so i told her i'd try to answer it for her, and that sort of led to the creation of a climate change department at my law firm, which sent me to, you know, spend some time up in the Northwest Territories, which was amazing, you know, on the Arctic Ocean, um, and, you know, ended up being in the, you know, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, et cetera, which led to some speaking engagements and ultimately um, uh, the, the book. And so um, it's been an incredible journey. But one of the, one of the things I've, I've always said to my kids is, you know, conservatism and liberalism, uh, you know, progressivism and, 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 and libertarianism, just sort of picture, you know, we're all this vehicle. And, um, you know, the engine is the progression and, and, and moving us forward. And it, it really does sort of take us forward. But without the conservatism, the brakes, you know, the, the, the train really does run off 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 the cliff. And, and, and like just in general, we kind of need both here. And using that sort of language and sort of vilifying and calling people climate deniers and talk about, you know, Thelma and Lee's and going, it really is scaremongering. And I, I don't I don't think it helps. I mean, it really comes down to human beings have limited bandwidth. So we try to take advantage of that bandwidth and we and we have to say outrageous things and sort of hide the truth from people because it's it's in their own interest to do that. But but really, we're doing a disservice to the debate. You need to take time. You need to talk about why we think climate change is real, how it's going to manifest itself, what we can do, what, what's the low-hanging fruit that we can kind of grab onto and do, you know, what are the sort of hard decisions we need to make next. And 
But all that requires a reasoned debate where we're respectful of each other and, and, you know, not engaging in hyperbole like that. So how do we simmer this discussion now, uh, uh, simmer this discussion down? Are we too divided as, uh, as a country, as a nation, as a world now to solve this issue? Well, I, I wish I wish I could answer that question. It's a it's a great question, and I'm not even sure if it's rhetorical or not because it's it's outside my pay grade to to sort of decide if we're going to be able to to come and 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 handle this challenge. I can only tell you the way I think if we're going to we're going to meet the challenge, how we might do it. You know, I don't know if you've had a chance to see it yet, but there's a a great special called I don't know, getting inside Bill Gates brain or bill gates head or something like that on netflix um it's quite good but one of the three challenges he he takes on is climate change and he sort of it 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 doesn't really it cuts to the chase doesn't really talk about all the other options that he's looked at but he sort of looks at it as a risk management puzzle and you know takes in all the different options and he concludes that the you know way to do it is through nuclear energy and finding a way to make that safe and secure. And rather than having spent energy fuel rods, using those fuel rods as a mechanism to, you know, fuel the exist the, the new nuclear plant. So I'm not saying that's the way, but that that's the sort of discussion we need to to have. You know, the idea of democracies are amazing. They're wonderful. Everybody gets a voice. But one of the problems with democracy is everybody gets a voice, and sometimes <laughs> you kind of need like a benevolent dictator. I'm, I'm not saying put dictators in right. charge of the North American countries, but we do need to kind of come together with some kind of panel or, or some sort of decision-making or some entity that we can trust to look at these solutions and, and try to come down with the, uh, with the best solve. So what message do you have for political leaders who may be using this for their own agenda? What message would you tell leaders of, of the world, not only these, our country, my country and yours? Yeah, so I'm going to I'll answer your question directly, I promise. But um, I'm going to use it as a little bit of a plug for the book. The, the, the book was actually received a blurb from, a, you know, in the United States for a, the Democratic national chairman as well as a Republican national chairman. So I was very proud that I could get both political parties, the chairman of both parties, to sort of look at that issue, which is a pretty contentious issue, and both say, okay, well, that's all right. That's sort of down the middle, and that's a good a good try. And so I, I think, you know, more people um, – Sort of acknowledging that okay, let's 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 at least listen. This is too big for um, you know sort of the usual political brinksmanship that sometimes we engage in. Let's really you know for for our children and our children's children. Let's really sit down and see if we can talk about you know compromise and putting agenda aside and 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 really listen. And there have been people like the the recently deceased T Boone Pickens and MIT has a program on this and. Um, like I mentioned, Bill Gates earlier, there are folks who are really using their, you know, whatever powers they can bring to bear uh, to bring people together. And, and I think, um, you know, I, I think we just need to try to convince our political leaders to get back to where we were a, a little bit better of listening to each other. Um, and that's a hard thing to, to, to hope will happen given recent history, but uh, we just have to keep trying. William Stewart has been with us. Stuart Smith, law author of the book Climate of Uncertainty, a balanced look at global warming and renewable energy. Uh, Bill, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. 
Scott. My pleasure. Take care. All right, you too. Let's bring in Blair Feltmate, professor and head of the Intact Center on Climate Adaptation, University of Waterloo. Blair is with us now. Blair, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. I'm happy to be here. Has the issue of climate change uh, been hijacked by extremists? It seems that um, uh, you, we either have uh, people who are, uh, Elizabeth May's comment earlier on, were Thelma and Louise heading for a cliff, or there's complete climate change deniers saying that the whole thing is a hoax. Is the real message being lost in the sauce here uh, because we can't seem to find a balanced approach? I think you're probably correct. The, there, there may be a little bit too much um, hyperbole on both sides of the equation, and it might be better to calm it down the discussion and think logically through how do we address climate change. But just to be clear, and then and taking it out of the hands of people that you might otherwise deem or categorize as uh, extremists, uh, uh, in Canada, Environment Climate Change Canada, about four or five months ago, they put out a report written, authored by a quite a number of, of uh, climate scientists who work for Environment Canada, uh, and, and the report was called Canada's Changing Climate 2019. And in that report, they were quite clear to make the point that climate change is real. It has happened, is happening, and will continue to happen. It's irreversible. Mm-hmm. And that we, meaning human activities through the burning of fossil fuels, we are the causal mechanism, period. And, and it's not just this group of Canadian scientists, and, I, and I'm not diminishing them at all, but you certainly you see that from the IPCC and lots of other well-informed, incredible scientific bodies that establish that that is the reality that we're experiencing. So to my mind, the question becomes, uh, what can we do to, to at least slow down the rate of, of climate change? Number one, mitigate, mitigate greenhouse gas emissions. And then number two, how do we adapt to the extreme weather that's uh, not only on the ground today, which is more extreme than in the past, but also to anticipate the extreme weather that's coming in the future in the terms of floods or fires or droughts or whatever the expression might be somewhere, how do we better prepare ourselves for this uh, uh, future that's going to be more challenging in terms of extreme weather than we're currently experiencing? How will Canadians have to change their lives in order to make this happen? Because, again, it seems that Canadians accept climate change. Where they're divided is, is how to solve it, what to do about it. Yeah, and there, so there's two aspects of what to do about it. Number one is how do, how do we work to lower, they say mitigate, but how do we work to lower uh, our emissions of greenhouse gases that, that are uh, a result of all our particular activities. That's number one. How do we lower our greenhouse gas emissions? And number two, what can we do as Canadians to adapt to extreme weather risk? In polls, you know, that I'm sure you you reference all the time, you will see that people will say that, I, you know, many people at least will say, I, I believe climate change is real and that uh, the human activity is, is the cause. And they will also suggest that we need to do something about that. We've got to turn this ship around. But, for example, in let's say, uh, two days from now, I'm in Toronto, I think you're in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Um, on Friday, this Friday, starting at noon, uh, every 400 series highway going out of Toronto and southern Ontario region will be jam-packed for people driving for four hours in every direction, trying to get to cottages to um, drive uh, jet skis and, and, and motorboats. And, uh, and I'm, by the way, I'm just using this as an example to make a point. Yep. 
all of these, many of these people that are engaged in that activity, and they're good, well-intentioned individuals who care about climate change, but they're not all staying home and saying, I'm not going to make that drive because I want to lower my, my carbon footprint. Exactly. You know, I'm not going to stay home this weekend. Right. So as soon as you enter into the realm of well-intentioned people who otherwise say we should address climate change, when they have to material give, materially give up some aspect of lifestyle, uh, all of a sudden they t- it turns into, I didn't know you meant that. Mm-hmm. Or you say you're not going to fly to the Caribbean for a vacation to go on a cruise ship because you want to lower your footprint. People go, well, gee, you know, I didn't know it meant that. So it's it, the, the, the problem isn't that uh, uh, good intentions. The problem is operationalizing and being willing to give up that which, you know, is contributing to this challenge we're realizing. So is that what the average Canadian is going to have to do? Are we going to have to give up the car, trip to the cottage, the motorboat, the jet ski, the cruise, the whatever? Because, again, that is going back in time if, if we're depending on that to save the planet, is that realistic? Um, I don't think anybody's going to give up that stuff. And by the way, I'm one of these people. You know, I don't have the cottage, but, you know, I've got, a pool, in the back. I've got a pool in the backyard and I'm, we're not getting rid of the pool. I hear you. So the, the um, but there has to be some element of give for sure. And, and, and I really don't see that happening. And uh, it's very hard it's, uh, to take things away from people or for people to be guilt- willing to give up things. That so they, if you don't they, see they that, to like. if you don't see that happening, Blair, then how do we solve this? Because again, well, that's going back to my earlier statement. If you're like, you're expecting everybody to give all that stuff up, then guess what? The world's coming to an end. There's nothing we can do about it. We're Thelma and Louise over the cliff. But if we come up with some sort of balanced approach that's livable, uh, you know, I think people will jump on board, but we don't seem to have that. Instead, we have well, parked the car. Yeah, no, there, there are, but there are things we can do that, and I put them. I, I will put these in the reasonable category, like with a reasonable expectation of people following through. For example, one of the things that contributes to um, the greatest cost that we're realizing the climate uh, due to climate change in Canada right now is flooding. Uh, flooding is the number one cost in the country, and in particular, in in particular, basement flooding. But what is contributing to that are two primary factors. One is we're experiencing more storms uh, with of greater magnitude, more precipitation coming down over shorter periods of time on a repeated basis. So that contributes to flooding. You've experienced a lot of this in Hamilton, for example. Mm-hmm. But what's also contributing to flooding is the loss of natural infrastructure. Mm-hmm. In southern Ontario over the last 100 years, we've removed about 73% of the natural infrastructure that was originally here, the forest, the fields, the yeah. uh, wetlands. It's now gone. It's paved over or turned into some form of agricultural development. One of the things we could do as a society to mitigate uh, climate risk uh, is to, first of all, stop destroying natural infrastructure. Let's at least retain that which is still here, incorporate it into building design and, and development so that when we build a new community going forward, we just don't go in and wipe out everything and right. put in row housing. We incorporate natural infrastructure into that community. And that could do two things. One is it mitigates flood risk. Number two, through by retaining trees and, and biomass, uh, that will draw down CO, that draws down a certain amount of CO2 sure. out of the atmosphere. But mm-hmm. if we took that to a logical extension of doing it en masse, not just at a provincial level and a federal level, but globally, an aggressive tree planting and or forest restoration program that could that could make a material contribution to lowering greenhouse gas emissions the other thing we need to do globally and we need to do it like rapidly is 
think about a third component to addressing the climate file, which almost gets no attention, which is, in my opinion, should be right at the top of the list. We talk about mitigating greenhouse gas emissions, and we talk about adapting to extreme weather risk. We need the equivalent of a Manhattan project or a Marshall Plan to focus on carbon capture and sequestration technology that is cost-effective and and, uh, uh, deployable on scale. In other words, sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere. I see this as the one area where there's a lot of hope, but we're not putting enough energy into uh, developing that technology. Hmm. Blair Feltmate has been with us, professor and head of the Intact Center on Climate Adaptation, University of Waterloo. Fascinating discussion, Blair. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime at all. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.